Hello and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and this episode, like in our last episode, we're going to do a bit of a zoom in on one of the more than 1,700 Canadians who volunteered to fight in the Spanish Civil War. But before I get started, I want to make a little request. If you've been listening to this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'd love to hear if you have any, do you have any feedback? Do you have any topic requests? Do you want to tell me that I'm not a good historian? Do you wish that the sound quality was better and more consistent? Yeah, me too. I'm working on it. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at CanadaSCW. You can get in touch with me via email, karina.mickelson at dal.ca. That's K-A-A-R-I-N-A dot M-I-K-A-L-S-O-N at dal.ca. You can get in touch with us through our website, SpanishSvilor.ca. Or you can send us some feedback through iTunes with their rate and review function. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Today we're going to talk about Ivor Anderson, who was one of the Canadians who volunteered in the Spanish Civil War. And he was better known by his nickname, Tiny. He was a Danish-Canadian who fought in Spain. And we know quite a bit about Anderson. And that's for two reasons, I guess. He was very well-liked. So he appears in the memoirs of his friend, Ronald Liversedge, and a lot of other volunteers' reminiscences. And he was also the subject of a 1987 article by S. Mano Hansen. And that article included 12 letters that Anderson wrote and sent back to his family in Denmark. So we know a lot about his first years in Canada because he recorded them. But he lived a very short and very eventful life, and I want to walk through his life today. Anderson was born on October 1st, 1907, in Boal, Denmark, and he was raised on a farm there. He was the youngest son of five children. And he lived in Denmark for the first 19 years of his life and immigrated to Canada in the fall of 1926, shortly after the death of his father. And his sister was already living in the U.S., but he chose to come to Canada. So writing about Anderson, Henson describes what a difficult time it was in the late 1920s to build a new life in Canada. And he talks about how some people managed it brilliantly and others sunk to the bottom without a trace. And he describes Anderson as one of the many who experienced Canada from the bottom and who was imprinted with the depression and unemployment of the time. So in his first few years of Canada, Anderson was working as a miner and logger in Alberta and British Columbia. In a letter to his brother, he describes living in a sod house, and he described it as a bit dark, but cozy and warm inside, and that's the main thing. And in other letters, he thanked his family for sending cookies and complained about the slow mail service, and he also discouraged his mother from sending woolens in the spring of 1927 because he said that here you only wear clothing until it is dirty and dilapidated and then you throw it away. Nobody does any mending. So he didn't, I guess he didn't want her to waste her nice woolens on him. He worked really hard, but even in 1927, he was already seeing the effects of unemployment around him. So he wrote that there were a couple hundred Danes in Edmonton and most had no money and many were begging in the streets. And he wrote that there were 12,000 people without work in Edmonton in 1927. And somebody had told him that two men had starved to death because there was no social assistance here. 
So let's just take a minute and pause on that number. So 12,000 unemployed in Edmonton in 1927 when the population was 67,000. So that's 17% of the population that he reports being unemployed. And that's probably not the most accurate statistic because we don't know where Anderson's getting this 12,000 unemployed number. But uh, I also suspect that many of these unemployed folks may not have had steady residences and were probably not counted in the census or included in the 67,000 population number. But it's still a pretty staggering number. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, at a certain point, I, I almost trust his number that seems yeah. to have been pulled out of thin air more than the uh, more than the numbers that were probably managed very carefully so that they didn't you know overrepresent the the unemployed in the the you know public record. Yeah, exactly. And he was seeing a ton of unemployment. Like he right. believed that number. So I'm probably going to point this out a lot during this episode, but it's worth noting that this was before the Great Depression began. And already unemployment was astounding in Edmonton. And it wasn't for another five years that poverty and unemployment would get so bad in Edmonton that they held a hunger march. That was in 1932. And when thousands of hungry, impoverished people marched and protested the lack of social assistance. And you can learn more about that in episode four when I talk to Andrea Hissenbink, because she knows a lot about that march. So let's just recognize for now that it was so difficult to find steady employment in Canada, and especially in the West, in the late 1920s before the stock market crash. Though Anderson himself was a recent immigrant, he often worried about the trains of immigrants that were coming into the province. He wrote, the more people that arrive, the lower wages become. I can't advise anybody to come here, even though I myself am happy to be here. He held some dis discriminatory attitudes towards many immigrant groups, particularly the Russians and the Polish, but he also considered other Danish people to not be hardworking. <laughs> so those discriminatory attitudes extended to his own people. But he was also really excited about the freedom of movement and the lack of class structure in Canada. So he wrote, it is a new country and you cannot imagine the conditions until you've seen it. There is no class difference between the people here. You don't have to stand with your hat in your hand for anybody. There is only one class on the trains. People straight from the forest, ragged and unshaven, are sitting together with well-dressed ladies and gentlemen. And here everybody knows each other. And he was really excited that he could call his boss by his first name and that he could walk around the city in coveralls and be met with respect wherever he went and that he could speak to anyone. And these comments are really interesting because in the context of Canadian literature, this is something that people have been writing about for a while. So in 1852, Susanna Moody published her canonical settler memoir, Roughing It in the Bush. And throughout that book, she complains about the lack of class structure in Canada. So she moved from England, which is a very class-based culture, to rural Ontario. And she was shocked by the lack of respect from servants and those who she considered below her, which pretty much included Scottish people, Irish people, Indigenous people, anybody, the French. When she landed in Quebec, she complained about the well-behaved Scots who stepped off the ship and immediately became infected by the same spirit of insubordination and misrule. And she insisted on eating separately from her servants, even when they were living in a tiny house together for years. Because although there was no difference in the flesh and blood, education makes a difference in the mind and its managers. And till these can assimilate, it is better to keep apart. So she lamented the lack of class structure in Canada, whereas Anderson really celebrated it. And she was also 
shocked at the class and job mobility. So she was shocked that employees would leave a job with little notice because they were confident they could find work somewhere else. And Anderson also talks about not being required to give notice and to leave jobs freely. He refers to himself as a really experienced logger after like two months in the woods because most people would stay at the job for only a couple days. And he changed jobs often, but unlike Moody's employees, he was changing jobs out of necessity rather than desire. So he noted that few people could hold a job year round and most people had to move from place to place depending on the season trying to find work. Anytime that I get a chance to hear more about the history of wage labor, I I mm-hmm. really love that because I mean, one reason is because you know we have this assumption that precarious labor is this thing that was invented in you know 1960. You know there was the yeah. gold, there was the golden age that you know lasted until the 1950s when every you know every man worked at a at a car plant you know a car manufacturing plant and everyone had you know 40 hours a week or 35 hours a week but like this shows that that is just utter nonsense like you know your people have always been scrambling yeah and that kind of structure emerged after during and after the second world war yeah exactly exactly but we kind of forget what happened before that so it's really interesting that he points out how precarious labor was in canada before the great depression and also it felt very different to him than denmark yeah. where people wouldn't be moving around as much. That um, is really interesting. And it speaks to like our resource-based culture Yeah, that is so seasonal, like agriculture, logging, mining, construction. These are fairly seasonal jobs. Yeah. So moving around Alberta and BC, he worked a lot of different jobs. So he describes really violent prairie hailstorms, which devastated farms, buildings, and livestock in southern Alberta and really affected people's livelihoods there. I included that detail because, like, prairie hailstorms are pretty impressive and terrifying things. He wrote to his family about how he didn't want to return to Denmark because he didn't want to have to work for a boss. He only wanted to return to Denmark if he could, like, have his own business. But he agreed with his brother that there was not that much good about Canada, and it could be estimated that 95% are worse off than they were in the old country. But you don't hear too much about them. It is almost impossible to find work here in the winter. So... That's really interesting because there was all these really positive stories going back to Europe about immigrating to Canada and how successful and wonderful you could be. And that was not the experience that he saw around him. And he did not represent, even though he was one of the more successful immigrants around in that he wasn't begging for food yet, (laughs) uh, he was not positive in his letters about Canada. So once again, this is 1928 still a full year before the economic depression would even begin. Um, And he's already describing riots in Edmonton where the police forces were using tear gas bombs to subdue hungry rioters. And he met many Danes who were not doing well, including the son of former Prime Minister Stowning, who looked just like the rest of us. And he wrote about many Danes begging for food and sleeping in baggage cars. And within a few years, he was probably joining them in those same baggage cars. So in 1930, he continued to report to his family about rising unemployment, the lack of social assistance, and the increase in crime. He was unemployed and depressed by this point, but he was still doing better than most, and he was well enough off to lend money to friends in need. And in early 1931, things started to become much worse. He was either very ill or he was in an accident at a sawmill, and his family had to send him money, whereas previously he had been sending money to his family. 
the sawmills around him were going bankrupt and people were getting evicted from their homes. At this point, he was living in Vancouver. The police he described as terribly brutal, and he wrote that they were hiring more and more police officers to deal with all the desperate, unemployed people who were congregating in Vancouver. The police even attempted to recruit Anderson, but then they realized that he was a foreigner and they refused to hire him. He wrote back to his family in his last letter that we have. Hansen guesses that there were many other letters that he just can't track down. But in the last extant letter, he wrote, It is a peculiar world. Everything is here in abundance, and yet people in the thousands starve and lack the most necessary things. And he ended this final letter by reporting that he had pawned his clothing, but he had it back now, and he felt like a completely different person. Though there are no more existing letters after 1931, we know a little of Anderson's life in the early 1930s from his friend Ronald Liversedge. So during the next few years, he joined many other men and rode the rails in search of employment. I don't have it confirmed, but it was likely that he ended up in relief camps. He continued to spend a lot of time in Vancouver, and he was involved in many protests and demonstrations there. And police brutality, as he noted elsewhere, was fairly common at this time, but policemen had trouble pushing Anderson around. Liversedge describes him as a young man with a beautiful physique, six feet, two inches tall, with blue eyes, blonde, and slightly curly hair. He was modest by nature, so quiet that some of the boys considered him slightly backwards and tried to take a protective attitude towards him. But there was nothing wrong with him. He was very intelligent, liked by everyone, and he had leadership qualities. He participated in all the demonstrations, and no policeman in Vancouver ever got the better of him. So Anderson's height was his most outstanding feature, and his nickname was clearly ironic, though Tiny may have also been a nod to his very quiet nature. And you can see a photograph of Tiny Anderson on our website, and I'm going to refer to him as Tiny for the rest of this episode, because <laughs> it's just nicer. I really like how the uh, he uses demonstrations like as, as shorthand for what are certainly riots. Like if, yeah. if you're getting into a fight with the cops every time you have a demonstration, you may you may not be having a demonstration at a certain point. Yeah. yeah. Liversedge wrote in a letter that he didn't know Anderson's first name. He only ever knew him as Tiny. And he guessed that his first name was maybe Carl, which I think is really funny. Um, So you can see a photograph of Tiny on our website, and I'll post it with this episode. And even from the photograph, which pictures Tiny from the waist up, it's fairly clear that he was a tall man. So he has this long face, and he has that slight hunch to his shoulders, which tall people generally have because they're used to kind of like <laughs> hunching down. I used to have that hunch when I was the tallest one around. Right, right. <laughs> and he, in this photograph, he's really neatly dressed in a shirt and tie with a leather jacket over top. And we don't have a date for that photograph, but it's the kind of photograph that Tiny describes in his letters wanting to send back home to his family. And it's the kind of clothing that he told his mother he was saving up for. Um, in his final letters. So it's kind of nice to see him in that photograph and see him so nicely presented because appearance was something that's really important to him. Hansen writes that Tiny's family doubted that he went to fight in the Spanish Civil War because it would not have been his way to act for the communists. But in the letters that Tiny sent home, it's easy to see that he had this growing discomfort with the very callous capitalist system in which he lived. So in Canada, he became more involved in unions, unemployed groups, and protests. And he often complained to his family about the lack of health care and social assistance. And he and Liversedge became friends through their work on different committees. They were both involved with the Ontario Ottawa Trek. 
And they ended up traveling to Spain together with a larger group of Canadians. And much of our information about Tiny's journey and fate come from Liversedge. So sadly, his family never heard from him again. They didn't know that he went to Spain. They didn't know how he died. Oh, and that's not uncommon, I guess, among some of the volunteers that we see that they just didn't really fill their family in on exactly what they were doing. Um, Yeah, or they weren't able to. Um, So he complains a lot about the Postal Service, but also he was traveling around so much that it's hard to imagine how letters reached him as much as they did, right? Like if you spend your summer in Vancouver and your winter in Edmonton, it might be eight months between getting letters because letters might be going to Edmonton. (laughs) Yeah, and if you probably almost never had a fixed address, right? You would be boarding houses or something of that sort. So pretty remarkable that he got any letters at all. Yeah, I'm glad those cookies reached him. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Liversedge talks a little bit about their journey to Spain. So he met up with Tiny and a group of other men, many of them from Vancouver, in Toronto. I think they traveled down to New York and then sailed from there. And on the ship, they uh, were all pretending that they weren't going to Spain. And eventually, like, I think... Liversedge was playing cards with this other dude and the, the, the guy was just like, hey, no passeran. And then they both laughed and then started to become friends. <laughs> and uh, they were hiding it from the crew that they were going to Spain. And at the end of their trip across the ocean, one of the crew members was like, you're a lot nicer and quieter than the last group of volunteers going to Spain. <laughs> and Liversedge was like, oh no, you figured it out. <laughs> But they were definitely coached by the recruiters uh, not to reveal it because it was technically illegal. Right. Yeah. So much of this so, falls into the, the category of open secret, right? Like every... Yes, open secret. When they're, secret. you know, milling around in, in Paris or when <laughs> pretty, yeah. pretty much you were at the mercy of border guards not caring or, or actively supporting the Spanish Republic, depending on... Depending on where and when you crossed. Yeah, exactly. Tiny's group ended up spending a while in Paris. And Liversedge was leading this group, but he really trusted Tiny to help him manage these men. So uh, there was this troublemaker drinker named Danny, who Liversedge describes as giving him a lot of worry and anxiety. And he decided that Tiny would be trusted to look after Danny. So he describes how Tiny gave a little grin, grabbed Danny by the back of the neck, lifted him off the deck, gave him a shaking, let him down and said, now then, Danny, you'd better watch yourself. (laughs) And so during their last night in Paris, Liversedge was kind of stressed out about like who would go off drinking and get arrested. And but he said that he wasn't worried about Tiny because Tiny was just going to go to the Eiffel Tower to see the lights, whereas most of the other volunteers were going out drinking or going to brothels. So Tiny was one of 254 international volunteers that traveled to Spain on a ship called the Ciudad de Barcelona. And Kevin, you probably know more about this than I do. No, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, I remember I've read around 250 in a few different sources. Yeah. So the ship sailed either on May 28th or May 29th from France in 1937. And it was scheduled to dock in Barcelona around 5 p.m. the next day. But on the afternoon of May 29th or 30th, the ship was torpedoed by an Italian submarine. And the ship sank very quickly and many of the men did not know how to swim. Tiny was seen dragging man after man through the water to a seaplane that had landed to help. So reportedly, he saved around 14 men by carrying them to the seaplane. Many volunteers died during the ship's sinking. I'm not sure how many. No, I'm not. Do you know? The numbers are, I think, not super firm. Very iffy, yeah. 
So Tiny made it safely to shore. And on shore, Tiny and Liver's Edge were called upon to identify the bodies of the dead volunteers, including two Danish volunteers who Tiny had befriended the day before, which is kind of sad. So Liver's Edge and Tiny continued to work together in Spain. The two agitated for a Canadian battalion, which eventually became the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Liver's Edge described Tiny as a courageous and daring man, modest and astute, who did what he considered the right thing, and nobody can put any blame on him. Tiny was known for his cleanliness, and he was infamous for taking any opportunity he could to wash his underpants. Um, infamous. I like, that, I like the choice of words. <laughs> yeah, his comrades didn't like it because when he laid his underpants out to dry, they thought it would put the whole group in danger because it would be visible by enemy planes. <laughs> so they were worried they were going to get bombed by enemy planes because Tiny needed to dry out his underpants right. every time they right. stopped. <laughs> And this really resonates with the man who wrote those early letters to his family because he often talked about clothes and cleanliness in relation to his emotional state and like how uncomfortable he was when he didn't have clean clothes and how he was saving up for clothes. Like he was a man who appreciated cleanliness and hygiene and clothing, which I relate to. He was a he was a bit of a femme, maybe. <laughs> So eventually Liversedge had to leave the front lines due to illness, and that was the last time he saw Tiny. In May 1938, Tiny was officially commended for his good work and faithful performance of his duty in operations. And according to Henson, he was one of only four soldiers to receive this specific citation for bravery. And Tiny Anderson died on August 7th, 1938 at Sierra de Pandos near Gandesa. Witnesses report that he was hit by either a grenade or a bomb, which smashed both his legs, and when he realized there was no hope of saving the legs, he shot himself. According to Victor Hoare, Anderson was buried on a spot under some rocks, as it was very difficult to retrieve bodies safely during the daytime. Um, And his death at his own hands became kind of a legend among the volunteers. It was clear that Tiny made an impression on his comrades. He was tall, reliable, brave, heroic. He lived a really short life. He died just a few months short of his 31st birthday. Um, But I feel like he really made his mark on the world. He saved a lot of men. He worked a lot of jobs, did a lot of labor in Canada, and he advocated for a lot of communities. So I think it's interesting that in 1926, he arrived in this cold, wooded country where there was so much poverty and no social security and so few opportunities. And he spent the the rest of his life fighting for a better place. And fighting for a place where people would be supported and respected by their governments. And he took that fight to Spain. So he contributed to the Spanish struggle, but also to Canada's struggle. Um, And it's men like him that advocated for the social security structure that we really value today. (laughs) So I think that these connections are important to make. Like, I don't want to overstate his contribution, but I think it is important to think about these kinds of stories. So he moved across the ocean and he expected to find a welcoming, prosperous country because that's the narrative that Canada has always told about itself, right? That we're prosperous and welcoming. Sometimes we said we were only welcoming to certain group, but sometimes we didn't make that distinction and then just treated people badly when they arrived. So what he found instead was insecurity and poverty. And he worked to change that and to make things better for himself, his comrades in Canada and in Spain. And his activism was really resisted and rejected by the government and police forces. 
I think it's like a nice privilege that we get to remember him and to look at the current ways that we represent ourselves to immigrants versus the ways we receive them and to appreciate that Tiny Anderson was really honest in the story he told about his immigration to Canada. Like he liked the country, he was happy here, but he was also honest about how terrible it was and how unwelcoming and hostile it was. And that feels pretty pertinent right now, especially as we Canadians compare ourselves really favorably to the United States. But also, and a lot of other people have talked about this, and my PhD buddy, Brittany Krauss, works on this. We are very hostile towards any negative stories of refugee and immigrant experience. Like, we just don't want them. We want grateful immigrants. And Tiny Anderson was not a grateful immigrant. (laughs) He was a very critical immigrant. Mm -hmm. And it's important to listen to those stories. And that's a common, a common theme across our, our volunteers is there weren't really none of them fit into the grateful immigrant uh, narrative. Although if you, if you clip out or cut out certain aspects of their story, you can, you can make them fit into the grateful immigrant uh, narrative, which I think has been done in a a number of cases, but maybe we're trying to kind of counteract that a little bit. Yeah. I'm actually surprised, like having researched this story, Anderson's story this week and having listened to you talk about tragic like how productive it feels to think about these things. Mm -hmm. Every time I go online, it's so, so negative, like such terrible, tragic stories about immigration. And it's so much to take in and process. But then I go and do this work and I'm like, oh, this is helping me. Right. (laughs) It's helping me to understand what's going on and maybe how we can resist it and how to listen. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you can... When you can situate things historically, I think that makes a big difference mm-hmm. in terms of your comprehension of, of what's going on today. Like that, that's for me anyway. That's always the most important thing is when I can begin to to appreciate, you know, how you know there's nothing new uh, about the situations yeah. that we face today. I'm always reminded of the uh, the Walter Benjamin quote about how you know the the task at hand is to introduce a state of emergency. You know, we think we look around and we see horrible things happening and we think that this is this is the state of emergency fascism is the state of emergency and we need to react and he's saying no this is this is business as usual this is has always been the Mm. way that things have been and our task is to to make it so that uh, things aren't like this anymore yeah that's really helpful all right i didn't i didn't know so much tiny anderson stuff until now i know it's so cool to have his letters it's so interesting that anderson's family was like shocked that he would be on the side of communism but i feel like that radicalization really happened yeah. Because Canada was such a capitalist hellscape. Yeah, well, and there's, there's nothing quite like the experience of having your expectations, you know, shattered, right? Like you've been promised, yeah. you've been promised something and then it's not delivered. It's a good yeah. way to radicalize someone. Today's episode was written by me, Karina Mickelson, and recorded and produced by Karina Mickelson and Kevin Levanji. We are supported by Canada and the Spanish Civil War and SHRC, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. You can find all of our show notes on our website, spanishcivilwar.ca slash podcast. And you can always get in touch with us on our Twitter feed, at CanadaSCW. 
In our next episode, Kevin Levangi is going to take over hosting duties, and he's going to talk to us about the general experiences of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion in Spain, from how they got there to what they wore, ate, who they took orders from, and how they felt about it. It's a pretty great episode with some pretty great anecdotes, so listen in.